Let's come before God in prayer as we uh, get ready to look at this passage. Let's pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, I pray that you would use me now in my weakness to preach your word clearly and truthfully. And Father, I pray that we would leave uh, this passage now, Lord, your word, with a greater sense of awe for our Lord and Lord and Saviour Jesus and a greater sense of thanks for the helper that he has sent us, the Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, recently, I came across one of those golden opportunities to share the gospel with someone. Uh, I'd walked into the barber's shop in Watsonia for a haircut, uh, and I take a seat in the waiting area. And as I look down at all the gossip magazines on the, the coffee table in front of me, I notice one book that seems a little under, out of place, poking its nose out from underneath a new idea magazine. Uh, and as I move the magazine aside, I realize that someone's actually placed uh, among the reading material a Christian book called Steps to Christ, How to Find Peace with God. Now, if ever there was a perfect way into a gospel conversation with my local barber, this has to be it, right? I mean, you could imagine the conversation you could have, like, I noticed there was a particular book on your table about Jesus. Is that yours? If, if you're a little extra bold, you might say something like, what do you think about the idea of peace with God? Now, if you've been a Christian for long enough, I'm sure you've had uh, many of these moments uh, with family or friends or strangers or your barber uh, to share the gospel. Um, but I think if you've been Christian long, long enough, I suspect that many of you also know how easy it is to stay quiet, even in these golden opportunities. Uh, there are many things that make us stay quiet, but, but let me just suggest three big reasons that uh, mean we might clam up in a moment like this. Uh, first, these moments to talk about Jesus can just be plain scary. Uh, in a world that is increasingly hostile to Christianity, it's scary to put ourselves out there and start talking about Jesus. But second, we, we might lack confidence that actually speaking to someone about their need for Jesus will actually change anything. You know, they probably wouldn't listen, so why bother going through the awkwardness? But three, some of us might actually still be working out ourselves whether we really believe Jesus is who the Bible says he is. And so how can we say something if we're still working it out ourselves? I find it too scary. I don't think anything will change. I'm not sure about things myself. You see, if we are going to be disciples who dare to speak about Jesus into our world, we actually need help. And the good news of our passage today is that we actually do have great help in the evangelistic spirit of truth that Jesus has sent to us. Uh, this passage shows us, I think, that we don't have to be overcome by fear in our witness because the Spirit is with us. We don't have to be pessimistic about people's responses because the Spirit himself will convict. And we don't have to remain unsure about what we read of Jesus in the Bible, because in the spirit-guided words of the disciples, the apostles, we find truth. 
And my outline for this text basically follows those three ideas. And so we're first going to have a look at the promised helper Jesus talks about at the start of our passage. Uh, it's the night before Jesus' death. Uh, he's been sharing uh, the Passover meal with his disciples and taking the opportunity to prepare them for his departure. Now, at this point in the night, the disciples are actually just a mess of emotions. Uh, and if you've been with us for the past few weeks, you might understand why. Uh, uh, they've just been told that Jesus is leaving them, one, that they're going to be terribly persecuted by the world, we heard that last week, two, and that they must preach about Jesus to this world that apparently hates them, three. It's almost as if they hear Jesus telling them, the world will hate you because of me. Now go into that world and tell them all about me. Uh, I think that sounds a bit like a scary mission to me. And clearly the disciples uh, find it a bit perhaps scary, certainly overwhelming. Uh, look halfway into verse 4 where our passage begins. Jesus says to his disciples, I did not say these things to you from the beginning because I was with you. But now I am going to him who sent me, and none of you asks me, where are you going? But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Now I imagine at this point all the disciples can think about is how disadvantaged they're going to be if Jesus goes. We won't have his help amidst the persecution we won't have his guidance about what to say or how to say it. Uh, we won't stand a chance when it comes to speaking about him. But you see, notice in verse 7 that Jesus thinks the opposite. He says that they won't be at a disadvantage by his going, but at an advantage. Look at verse 7. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. Jesus' departure is not loss, but gain, both for the disciples and every believer after them. We saw back in chapter 14 of John's Gospel that the coming helper means that, the, that believers now have God's spirit with them forever. John 14, 16 and 17. The Spirit equips both the believer to both live for Jesus and speak about him even in a hostile world. Uh, there's no doubt, I think, that it would have been awesome to walk and talk with Jesus uh, back 2,000 years ago like the disciples did. Uh, there's no doubt that it would have been marvellous to see him do his miracles, feeding the 5,000, raising Lazarus to, the, to life. And I think we often think about how great it would have been to be with Jesus physically, like the disciples. But actually, the believer today has something so much better than that experience, according to Jesus here, because they have God's spirit in them. Jesus is telling his disciples, his distressed disciples, not to be overcome by fear or sorrow. His going is to their great advantage. Once Jesus dies for the sins of his people, raises to life, ascends to his throne in heaven, 
he will pour out that spirit to his disciples and all believers, and they will have help like they have never known before. When they go out into that hostile world that Jesus has mentioned and start telling people about Jesus, God's spirit will be there, working in and through them so that the message they preach will find good soil. Jesus says that it it is to our advantage that he goes and the spirit comes. Now, I think that if we're going to push through the fear of speaking into our world about Jesus, then we need to grasp his big view of the spirit here as our great helper. And we need to know that it is really to our advantage that Jesus goes and the spirit comes. You see, when we, like the disciples, begin speaking the gospel into the lives of people who don't know about Jesus, we actually need to know in those moments we're not on our own. Uh, When I was doing um, some footy chaplaincy at the local footy club, it was easy to feel like I was alone and insignificant in a world of happy unbelief. It was actually hard work trying to bring the gospel into conversations with people who seem so happy, healthy, and seemingly uninterested. Every time I would drive to a training session or to a game on Saturday, I would be praying in the car. Lord, help me in this. Help me to remember I'm not alone, but that I have your spirit. Empower me by your spirit to actually be bold and speak. See, in just a second, we're going to see what the Spirit does in the world as the gospel comes. But first, we have to be convinced that the Spirit is with us in the world. Because when we get that, I suspect things will become a little less scary. But second, the Holy Spirit brings conviction to the world. He makes people see their guilt before a holy God and their need for Jesus. These verses kind of depict the Spirit's work like that of a prosecutor in court, showing people of the world the damning evidence of their lives that make them guilty before God. And you'll notice that the Spirit here in this passage brings a guilty verdict on three separate charges. Look at verse 8. When he comes, he will convict the world one, according to sin, two, in righteousness, three, judgment. So let's take them on as a time, as Jesus does. The first guilty charge, sin. Jesus says that the Spirit will convict the world concerning sin. Why? Well, verse 9 tells us, because they don't believe in me. You see, the great sin our world commits is unbelief, a refusal to believe in God and live under his rule. Uh, This sin is seen most clearly in the way the world rejected Jesus, God with us on earth. Uh, But the sin of unbelief is not one single thing. It's a worldview that actually says, that loves to say, my way, not God's way. And so when Jesus comes into our world and starts saying to people, I'm the son of God and it's my way, 
not your way, well, what does the world do? Well, it crucifies him. It rejects him. Uh, in John 3, uh, verses 19 and following, the verdict comes in this way, and this is the judgment. The light, Jesus, has come into the world, and people have loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. You see, when the Holy Spirit brings someone to conviction of sin, it's almost like he drags that person into that exposing light so that they finally see their life of unbelief for what it is, evil. And perhaps some of you actually have felt this uh, in your own life. You know the work of the Spirit in this way. Uh, a few years ago, one of the guys from the footy club where I was doing some chaplaincy started coming along to church. And he'd often comment that attending church was one of the more scary experiences of his life. And it wasn't because he was shy. It wasn't because just a lot of weird things happened during our service. It was actually because when he heard the opening prayer, when he heard the sermon, when he listened to some of the songs, he would hear talk of sin. And to think that so much of his life and worldview was considered sin before God was unsettling, convicting, scary. You see, the Spirit convicts the world concerning sin. He shows us what is really in us. But actually, he shows us what is not really in us too, which is righteousness, the second guilty charge. The Holy Spirit brings conviction concerning righteousness, verse 10. Uh, now, I suspect uh, most people in this world want to be seen as righteous. Uh, there is a reason why we choose to put some things on Facebook and not others. Uh, I'm yet to see people posting photos of their library fines or their parking fines. They somehow don't go up there. Uh, most people, I suspect, I would like to think of themselves as pretty good people generally. Maybe we validate this feeling by the polite way we often greet the checkout lady at Coles. Maybe we validate this feeling by the ethical products that we choose to buy. Uh, I recently noticed, actually, just as an aside, that the shampoo that we're currently using in our household uh, is vegan. It says so on the bottle. Now, it turns out that you can even be vegan in the way you wash your hair. Uh, and I thought, man, how righteous is that? Um, but the thing about taking confidence in our own sense of righteousness is that it blinds us to how far short we actually fall of God's standard of righteousness, a standard that we actually see lived out in the life of the Lord Jesus. See, unlike us, Jesus loved God and loved his neighbour perfectly. It wasn't just an exter external thing with Jesus, it was internal. See, I might look good on the outside by the fact I do things like wash my hair with vegan shampoo, um, but honestly, no amount of vegan shampooing 
makes up for the warped state of my heart. Another example, we might feel good about ourselves when we do something gracious on the road, like let another car merge in front of us. We've been gracious. We're a good person. But how quickly do we start hating that driver in our heart when he, th when he fails to throw on the indicator, brakes suddenly, we have to suddenly brake, all of a sudden he's not our friend anymore. See, no matter how hard we try, we can never escape from our corrupt hearts. And Jesus actually spent a great deal of time on earth trying to point out self-righteousness to the religious rulers of his day. In Matthew 23, Jesus says this, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you are like whitewashed tombs which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. See, Jesus had exposed the world's lack of righteousness while he was on earth. But verse 10 reminds us that he's not going to be on earth for much longer to keep doing this. Verse 10 says, I go to the Father and you will see me no longer. The Spirit's role, therefore, is to continue the work of Jesus, the work of convicting people about their lack of righteousness. So the Holy Spirit makes people see their sin for what it is, and he makes people see their righteousness for what it's not. But the third guilty charge, judgment. The Holy Spirit will bring conviction concerning judgment, verse 11. People will come to the terrible realisation that they are on a path to hell because of their rejection of God and his son Jesus. And in verse 11, you see uh, the reason given for that conviction. Look at it with me. Because the ruler of this world is judged. Uh, the ruler of this world is a reference to the devil or Satan. Uh, because Jesus has conquered sin and death at the cross and in his resurrection, the, the devil stands defeated. And he awaits his final judgment at the last day. And in the book of Revelation, chapter 20, verse 10, we read of that judgment of the devil. We see it depicted. And the devil who had, been uh, who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Now, I suspect most people here, and, and actually most people in the world, are somewhat okay about the fact that the devil's thrown into a lake of fire, I'm not too sure many people have too much of an issue with that one, but you'll notice in the following verses in Revelation 20 that it's not just the ruler of this world who is judged. The confronting thing is, is that it's actually everyone who is in the devil's camp, as it were. Everyone in this world who, like the devil, has lived in rejection to God, they are also judged. See what comes next in verse 11 and following. Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. From uh, his presence, earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and the books were opened. 
Then another book was opened, which is the book of life, and the dead were judged by what was written in their books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it, death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them, and they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. It's never actually pleasant. I don't know about you. I don't find it pleasant uh, to speak of God's judgment, of his deserved judgment for sinners. But you see, when judgment is proclaimed, the Holy Spirit does a convicting work. Uh, Many of you will recall the media storm that happened uh, as a result of Israel Folau's tweet about hell. Uh, As part of this tweet, uh, Folau wrote um, on the right-hand side there, those that are living in sin will end up in hell unless you repent. Jesus Christ loves you and is giving you time to turn away from your sin and come to him. Now that received a lot of condemnation from the world at large and it received a lot of critique from Christians you might have seen in the way he went about things. Uh, But the Sunday following that media storm, uh, someone walked into our church here I was at the welcome desk, and and this person asked me if I had seen Israel Folau's tweet. And I said yes, thinking that he was about to tear Israel Folau a new one. Um, But then he said, okay, well, that's good, because you know what? I think I'm going to hell. And I was just wondering if anyone anyone here was willing to help me repent. And... When I got back up off the floor, um, I said, yes, there are many people here who would love to help you repent and find forgiveness in Jesus. You see, sometimes the message of judgment doesn't always come in the right tone or the right tact. But that reminded me that moment that in the rare moments when judgment does come into our world, when the message of judgment comes in, that the Spirit can actually bring conviction. So the Holy Spirit brings people to see uh, Jesus as their Saviour by first convicting them of their horror of their own sin, unrighteousness, and the coming judgments. And actually, in Acts chapter 2, on the day of Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit comes upon believers for the first time, we see actually uh, all of this taking place on that day, this work of conviction. As the Apostle Peter preaches the gospel to the gathered crowd in Jerusalem, he lets that crowd know that in no uncertain terms they were culpable in the murder of God's Messiah, Jesus, but that God had raised Jesus to life. See, look at how the Holy Spirit brings conviction to their hearts in this passage. We'll take it from verse 36 in Acts chapter 2. Let all the house of Israel therefore know, says Peter, for certain that God has made 
him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. But when the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? Peter replied, Repent and believe, and uh, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. You see, the conviction that we read about here, that cutting to the heart, it doesn't come about because Peter was such a good public speaker. It comes because the Spirit made Peter's gospel message penetrate the hearts of his hearers. And if you're here tonight and you've been convicted of your sin and judgment as we've we've thought about those things, I would encourage you to do what Peter encourages his listeners to do. Repent and believe in Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins. We're going to think about that as we come to the Lord's table a little later. But that is why Jesus came, to take our punishment that we deserved for our sin on himself at the cross and give us forgiveness and life and righteousness. So what do we take away from Jesus' words at this point? Well, I think these words are a reminder that we need to have confidence in the convicting work of the Spirit as you seek to share the gospel. Uh, See, I think what makes speaking about Jesus in our world uh, difficult is actually our low view of the Spirit's convicting power. See, I think sometimes we lack conviction that there will be conviction. Now, it's true that some will continue in unbelief, but not all. The Spirit will bring conviction as we continue to be bold in sharing the gospel. Now, it may not be immediate like in Acts 2. Jesus doesn't give us a time frame on the Spirit's work. And this passage also doesn't put restrictions on the sort of person that the Spirit brings to conviction. I suspect we often think uh, it will be that sensitive soul that will come to conviction, or perhaps someone whose life is in chaos. But actually, there are no restrictions on what type of person the Spirit can bring to conviction, and that should actually give us confidence to speak to all sorts of people and pray that God would bring them to conviction and then salvation. The local barber He's worth talking to. Your uninterested housemate, they're worth talking to. Your well-mannered neighbour, he's worth talking to. The Spirit brings conviction. But finally, the Spirit reveals the truth of Jesus to the disciples. Uh, I think we all want to know that what we believe and how we live is actually based on truth. And for Christians, it's of crucial importance that we're confident that what is taught to us about Jesus by his apostles in the New Testament is true. We base our lives on that gospel message. In fact, the world will only ever end up hearing about that gospel message as we're convinced 100% that it's true. Uh, I remember, I think I've shared this maybe before with you, 
when I was working in the city and I went out to lunch with some of my work colleagues and we got talking about Christianity and one of um, my friends at, at that job uh, said to me, Chris, how do you think you will feel when uh, after you die and you realise there's nothing on the other side, that your whole life's just been a total waste? And at one level it's a fair enough question, right? See, if the authors of this book can't be trusted to tell me who Jesus is and what it means to follow him, as my colleague assumed, I probably am wasting my life. And so are all you if you're Christian. But actually what these last verses tell us, what they remind us is that the Christian life, which is centred on Jesus and governed by the teaching of the apostles is actually not a waste because it's true. It's true because the Spirit of God has guided the words of these first disciples in truth. Look at verses 12 to 13. I still have many things to say to you, says Jesus to his disciples, but you cannot bear them now. When the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you in all truth. For he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. Now, because Jesus has already identified himself earlier in this gospel as the truth, the way, the truth, the life, it's best to understand the Spirit's role here as guiding the disciples into a true understanding of Jesus, all that he said and all that he did while he was with them. The Spirit also makes known the things that are still to come. He will help the disciples grasp the great significance of Jesus' death, his resurrection and ascension, and what it means to live for him as they await his return. The Spirit of God will make sure that the disciples know the truth of these things and record that truth for future generations of believers like you and I. You see, we are actually guided into all the truth by the Spirit as we read the words of these first Spirit-guided witnesses. And notice what the mission of the Spirit is in all of this. It's actually the glory of Jesus. Did you see that in verses 14 and 15? Jesus says, He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine, therefore I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. The Spirit works to glorify Jesus by making the gospel in all its glory known to the disciples. The Spirit continues to bring glory to Jesus by bringing people to conviction and having them believe in and follow that same gospel proclaimed by the apostles. And that's actually what we see in Acts 2. You see, the crowd that we just uh, read about before, the crowd that is brought to conviction cuts to the heart that crowd where 3,000 people end up believing that day, the very next words we read are these, and they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the uh, fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to the prayers. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. Now, why do they do this? 
Well, because they know that the spirit who had changed their hearts, who had brought them to conviction, was the same spirit who had revealed truth to the, to the disciples about who Jesus is and what it means to follow him. And so they devote themselves to their teaching. And so the application, I think, here is to live confidently by the spirit-guided word of the apostles. We grow in our faith as Christians as we listen to their word. And because Jesus says that the spirit guided them in all truth, we should actually be worried when we hear of others claiming to reveal more truth of Jesus than the apostles. Mormonism and other groups claiming extra revelation should be rejected. But we should also be wary of those who claim that the words of the apostles are of less importance than the direct speech of Jesus recorded in the Gospels. Uh, I came across a group uh, called the Red Letter Christians, uh, and their slogan is this, taking the words of Jesus seriously. Now, this group is called Red Letter Christians because they give their focus to the words, the direct speech of Jesus as it's recorded in the Gospels, which in some of your Bibles will be written in red. But you see the effect that this has on the rest of the New Testament. It kind of actually downplays the rest of the New Testament as kind of less significant. And it's actually tempting to buy into that message in an increasingly secular age. You see, if we can sort of just write off or dismiss or downplay what the apostles teach in the letters, the rest of the New Testament, then we can probably avoid certain teachings that actually challenge the world's opinion on hot-button issues like sexual ethics or God's judgment. But you see, that's not what Jesus is telling us to do here, is it? He wants us to know that the apostles, his first witnesses, speak his words because they have been guided by his spirit. So this passage, I think, reminds us that Jesus has sent the spirit as our helper. This spirit brings conviction to the world, changes hearts, and this spirit reveals the truth of Jesus to and through the disciples. So what did I do with that golden opportunity at my local barber? Well, to be honest with you, I kind of blew that opportunity. See, by the time I got around to thinking about the, the best way to sort of bring in the gospel, the haircut was over and I was trying to mumble something at the cash register, and it just didn't go anywhere. And I suspect maybe you've had those moments to you where you just feel like you've blown it. And I tell you this because it, it can be sometimes helpful to remember that other Christians struggle with taking those gospel opportunities. But I also tell you this because it's helpful to remember that the spirit that we read about here can actually help us to speak boldly in the next gospel opportunity that we're presented with. And I actually found this to be the case a few days ago when another opportunity uh, presented itself. 
On Friday afternoon, um, I decided to go for a walk in the sun to get a coffee. Uh, it was 3 o'clock. I wanted to get there before 3.30. And as I left my house, I saw my neighbour out in his front yard. And when I saw him, I thought, it's kind of easy at this point to just keep walking. I want that coffee, and I might not get it if I stop. But when I actually reflected in that moment on, on kind of what my head had been swimming in in this passage for the past week, uh, I felt actually empowered to go and speak with the gospel with this man. Because I remember that actually I'm not on my own. It doesn't have to be so scary. Because I remember that the Spirit brings conviction. I went with hope in that conversation. Because I remembered from what I'd been reading that the absolute truth of the message uh, that I have in front of me in the Bible, I could actually speak with a renewed sense of confidence too, knowing that what I was saying is God's truth. Now, I'm sure I'll continue to struggle in future moments, but it's encouraging what we can do when we realise the help we have in God's spirit. So let's pray as we finish up. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have given us a great helper. Thank you with this helper that we are never truly alone, that you now live within us, that you empower us, that the gospel we share is a powerful message and that the Spirit will bring to conviction those who hear. Father, thank you that we can have confidence that the word we have in the New Testament is true. Thank you that we live by that true message. And we pray that others might come to realize that truth and turn to the Lord Jesus in faith and repentance. In Jesus' name, amen.